brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. Really excited to talk this episode with, uh, to speak this episode with Rob Trevino. Uh, he's the author of A Warrior's Path, Lessons in Leadership, has an amazing background, uh, really rich history in the Army, uh, in special operations. Uh, checking out what's up right now at Softrep.com, you can see an article that Kurt Troder wrote, an airstrike in Syria that no one seems to know anything about. Uh, that's worth reading. And the big news today, I guess, would be Trump announcing the Space Force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. Um, I just want to drop shit. Well, you know what? Let's play the speech that Trump gave, and I'll have you uh, react to this. Very importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to immediately begin the process necessary to establish a Space Force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. That's a big statement. We are going to have the Air Force, and we are going to have the Space Force, separate but equal. (laughs) It is going to be something so important. General Dunford, if you would carry that assignment out, I would be very greatly honored also. Where's General Dunford? General. But that's the importance that we give it. We're going to have the Space Force. One year ago, I revived the National Space Council and put exactly the right man in charge, and that's our friend, Mike Pence, who feels very strongly about this. And in December, I signed a historic directive that will return Americans to the moon for the first time since 1972, if you can believe that. Always remembering it's about that, but it's also about jobs and the economy. This is a great thing we're doing. This time, we will do more than plant our flag and leave our footprints. We will establish a long-term presence, expand our economy, and build the foundation for an eventual mission to Mars, which is actually going to happen very quickly. Yeah, so there we go. M-A-R-S. Mars. Red rocks. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a huge announcement, I would say. Uh, some people think, well, you know, it's absurd, but the the whole idea of uh, the militarization of space is not a new idea. And the no, space program no. from its, its inception has been very much tied 
to the military. Um, you know, I could even think of things that Neil deGrasse Tyson has said before, saying that, you know, people are uh, really unaware of why the whole space race started if they don't think it's related to us just trying to defeat Russia. It's unfortunately never just about space exploration. There is always some military motive to yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the history of warfare is the history of standoff, right? You want to have as, be as far back away from the enemy while having the longest ranged weapon system possible so like you know uh you know one force would have 10 foot spears so the next would have 12 foot spears and it would go on and on and then you get the bow and arrow and then you get guns cannons etc etc well space is the ultimate high ground so i mean it's always been something that we sought to weaponize and we have for decades as you mentioned um i I don't think i'm like necessarily acquainted well enough with the bureaucracy to understand or fully be able to know the relevance or importance of creating a separate space force, right? The air force and other agencies all have some sort of, um, purview over things that we put into space. Um, but could this be a, a good development? I mean, if you accept the idea that, you know, mankind's future is ultimately in space, then it makes sense to have a space force, right? Uh, if we're going to see an increase in weaponization of space, if um, if other countries like China are going to put weapons platforms into orbit or maybe even on the moon, then it makes sense to have a space force. Uh, as far as like I- I- the announcement to like we're going to Mars and we're going to the moon, that's, that all sounds kind of weird. I, I mean, didn't George Bush announce that we were sending a manned mission to the moon? I don't remember, to be honest. Um, or, I'm sorry, a manned mission to Mars. Uh, I believe George Bush announced that. So I don't know. Is it like what is he? How serious is he when he says we're going back to the moon or that we're going to Mars? I don't yeah. know. I the, the one valid criticism I do see on social media of this, um, beyond like a lot of silly criticism, is just that you know how much is this going to cost? And look at all the infrastructure problems we have in America that I, aren't well, being taken yeah. care of. The biggest of which, I mean, the by far, I think would be the Flint, Michigan water crisis, which these people still do not have clean water. And the whole excuse is that we we can't, we don't have the money basically to create a whole new system of them getting water there. Well, it's all over the country. Our infrastructure sucks. We can't build anything new. We can't build any new trains. We can't build new roads. We can't but I would say that's the biggest. I mean, every area of the country, I don't care how how poor, should have clean water. Like those are third world problems. Yeah, And uh, it is, I think, inexcusable that we have not fixed this for, what, about two years now at this point? I don't know. I mean, it's a valid criticism. Like, why can we spend money on all of this various assorted stuff? How come we can build new roads in Afghanistan, but we can't build them here? I mean, it's it's shameful, really. Um, I, it, it'll be interesting to see with the, the quote-unquote Space Force. I mean, is it really just going to be like a reorganization and we're just taking like Air Force assets and shifting them over to a new agency? I mean, is it really going to cost us more? What's the funding going to be like? Where's yeah. the money going to come from? We don't from? know the answer. Yeah, to all, of those are all things that have to be answered. Well, I did post on Instagram um, a photo of Trump announcing this because, you know, it's very much in the wheelhouse of what we do. It's military and, uh, you know, the executive branch. Uh, so after I posted that, I saw that Brandon Webb commented, uh, can't wait to see the space camo. And then, <laughs> and, and then some guy on our Instagram, the burrito sensei wrote, I can't wait to see them keep issuing different camo every few years. For space. Yeah. <laughs> I got an idea. I got an idea. All black. <laughs> what do you think of that? 
And then they just have to change that to a slightly different shade of black, maybe, I guess, <laughs> years down the line and spend oh, but then hundreds we, but of But then when we, go to, when we go to Mars, it's going to have to be red. Yeah. Damn it. This is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, before we get to Rob, I also have an email here from uh, Mark Delaney. Uh, commenting on our episode with Dr. Wong. Highly appreciated you all having Dr. Wong on the podcast to let him and you all know how the Secretary of Army's policies are playing out on line units. While he removed the requirement from DA, unit commanders can keep these policies in place. My company still does TRIPs because our first sergeant can't fathom cutting the requirement. Line leaders, especially senior NCOs, are the target audience that this message really needs to reach. Yeah, I read that email. Um, I thought that was interesting, and I know exactly what the dude is talking about because, uh, you know, senior leaders, senior NCOs in the military, they're institutionalized. It was like when uh, when the Army went away from having, you know, we used to, there's a such thing as shining your boots at one time. We wore jungle boots or all leather boots, and you had to get out your kiwi and, and polish your boots and everything every day. Um, that has gone away because now the force wears those desert boots that yeah. are made out of like that kind of suede leather type material. Um, and like there are first sergeants who are like freaking out about this because it's like, oh, we're not going to shine our boots anymore. I've been shining my boots for 18 years. And then it turns into, well, what do I do for a living if I don't go around and I yell at, at soldiers for not having their boots shiny enough? Um, so it's like institutionalization. That's what he's talking about there. It's like we're so used to doing it this way that senior leaders just cannot fathom, like, letting go of these, like, stupid requirements. You know, it, it's just a difference in, in mindset between, you know, kind of just sitting back and saying, well, that's the way we've always done things here versus accepting that we need to evolve and we need to change um, and, and delegating responsibility down to lower leaders and giving them the authority to make decisions. Yeah, so um, keep sending your emails to softrep.radio at softrep.com. Uh, I really enjoyed that episode in particular. I like speaking with Jack Devine as well since that was two great guests on one episode. Um, so, yeah, before we get to Rob Trevino, uh, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our crates have been Emerson Knives, a Blackhawk Industrials medical pouch, and cool stuff like a custom playing card set from an exclusive photo shoot we did of some hot models with guns, and it's cool, you can check that out. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats, training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Also, as a reminder for those who are listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. 
The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel. That's at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. And you can check out the Spec Ops Channel app. So joining us on SoftRep Radio for the first time, Rob Trevino. Rob is a former Special Missions Unit Operator, uh, also served in the Army 18th Airborne Corps and 75th Ranger Regiment. So a real history there. And the author of A Warrior's Path, Lessons in Leadership, uh, Rob now runs Evergreen Mountain LLC, which is a tactical instructions course. Uh, all different types of courses on there, looking at the website, uh, which you can check out. It's evergreenmountainusa.com. Uh, but, Rob, thanks for joining us, man. We're excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, and uh, Rob, I should just preface this a little bit. Um, I, I'm sorry that it took us so long to get you on the podcast because this has literally been like I don't know how many years in the making, in a sense. Which, and it's totally my fault. Um, Tom Greer, you know, most of you know him as Dalton Fury before he passed away. He asked me uh, to, uh, you know, review Rob's book, and uh, it was just one of those things. I'm so sorry, Rob. It, it just took a long time for us to get around to it. Um, one of those things that fell by the wayside, and it really shouldn't have. Um, I'm, I'm about halfway through the book right now, and I'm really, really enjoying it. Great. Thanks for reading it. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, maybe, you know, the, the right way to start this, uh, you know, your company is named Evergreen Mountain, but there's a bit more behind that name. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I'll try to keep it short. So um, for the all your listeners out there who don't have a small business or, or any business whatsoever, the first thing you have to do is create a name because the government needs to collect your taxes. So um, I was struggling on the name uh, when I was in uh, my former unit, my last unit in the Army, my code name was Rat. And um, I was trying to find all the cool rat names, Tactical Rat, Rat, Tactic, Rat, the really cool guy, and they were all taken. And I was voicing my frustration over, uh, over the issue. And my wife looks at me and says, hey, why don't you just use your Indian name? Well, I'm Native American, and my warrior name is Evergreen Mountain. So that's what it is. Very cool. And you write in the book that the name was given to you um, by, you know, tribal elders after your first combat tour, I believe, right? Right. So uh, where I'm from, and I think, uh, well, I don't think I'm, I'm almost positive that most um, Native American tribes here in the United States have a, uh, a warrior society. Most, if not all, um, Native peoples here in the U.S. are, are, are a warrior-based society. So for me, when I came back from my first uh, combat experience, my mom and, and, and my dad said, hey, you've got to go see the, the, the medicine man. And, and they took me and, and um, I wasn't sure what it was all about, but they knew and they hadn't told me. And then um, they renamed me. My initial um, uh, boyhood name was Bobcat. And then they granted me or gave me my warrior's name, which is uh, Evergreen Mountain. You want to talk a little bit about that, about your background um, growing up, uh, I think, largely in New Mexico, if I recall correctly, and, uh, and at least partially uh, on an Indian reservation? 
Yeah, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on on uh, on on any one of the two Indian reservations that I or the and two reservations that I lived on. We lived on. Uh, um, I'm enrolled in Cochiti Pueblo, which is uh, in northern New Mexico, but I am also a Yaqui Indian uh, from southern Mexico. Or I'm sorry, southern Arizona and northern Mexico in Sonora. So um, we initially lived on Cochiti Pueblo, which is where my mom is from. And um, we, the elders basically kicked us off the Pueblo, um, kind of holding to their tradition that whenever uh, a woman marries a man that is not from that Pueblo, she has to go with him wherever he goes. And my dad is not from there, so we couldn't stay there, basically. So they asked us to leave. And um, so immediately after that, we went down to uh, northern Mexico and to Sonora, and um, we lived with the Yaquis for about a year, but it was super brutal. It's totally, it's a different world down there. No running water. Um, we were living in a dirt floor home made out of bamboo, cooking outside on the fire. I mean, it was very, very uh, rough. And it was pretty hard for my mom to do simple things to keep us clean because we were continually um, uh we had uh, fleas in our hair all the time, but we were running around happy kids out there. But it's my mom finally said, hey, we got to get back to the States, man. This is pretty rough. Even for her, she didn't grow up with a whole lot, but it was still kind of kind of rough. And the, the bottom line is she wanted us to get back into school. So we came back and moved north into uh, northern New Mexico, found a place and bopped around a little bit and essentially established some roots finally when I was, I think, in eighth or ninth grade. And um, uh, and that's pretty much how it was for us. We didn't grow up with a whole lot. We were really, really poor, dirt poor. And um, so we just made do with what we, what we had. I really thought it was interesting in your book, and you described your relationship with your father. And, you know, on one hand, he is, uh, you know, he comes across in your book, as somebody who's uh, harsh, but also he clearly loved you guys, you know, and his approach to fatherhood seemed to be um, not so much about, you know, hugs and kisses. It was about teaching you the the things you need to survive in life. And since your book is about leadership, you know, that's kind of the, the opening of, of your book. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. My father, uh, like myself and every other father out there, uh, was not perfect. And uh, far from perfect, actually, and he had his flaws, and and we tend to tend to focus on those as as children, and even as a grown up looking back and say, yeah, you know what, I'm I'm not going to raise my kids that way. Mm-hmm. But he instilled a, a few um, things uh, into his children that still um, are part of our our character, I guess would be the best way to describe it. And, and the very first one was he taught us is a if you want to go anywhere or have anything in this life, you've got to work for it. And that's the bottom line. And and we worked our butts off as kids in a manual labor. I mean, by the time we were 11, 12, my brother and I, we were doing everything that the men were doing. And um, so that was a, probably the, the biggest thing that he taught us is, Hey, you have to work if you want anything. And he did most all of his life till, you know, the latter parts of his life, and then we got uh, kind of overweight and sick, and then he just went downhill from there. But to that point, he worked his whole life, and we did too, and, and we still are actually a whole family. 
And the second thing he taught us was uh, to, to treat people the way you wanted to, want to be treated. And um, it, I didn't grow up uh, where there was a lot of uh, racism or anything, but he he saw part of that. I don't know if it was a young man or a kid or, or whatever it was. And the bottom line, he says, you got to be fair with everybody. It, you can't be different than how you approach people or talk to people. You treat them the way you want to be treated. And, and I still do that to this day. And all of my siblings do as well. And the last thing he taught us was, was to never quit. He says, if you start something, you're going to finish it. And that's just the way we were raised. And aside from all of his other flaws, those three things still stay with me. So like I said, he was far from perfect at his flaws, just like I do. And, um, but those three things are, are the key things that I pointed out in my book um, with regards to leadership. And they're still part of me to this day. You describe him in the book as old school, and I, I think you said you called him sir right up until the day he, he passed away. Yeah, absolutely, man. That, he didn't play. Like, I can <laughs> remember one time going to, when I was in elementary school, I was, like, super misbehaving super bad, and he came in there, took off his belt, jerked me outside, gave me a few lashings, which I'm, I deserve, which is something I would never do to my kids. And I went back in, in the classroom red-eyed and, and um, still crying and whimpering. And, and, yeah, he didn't play, man. He was way old school. And then you also talked about how you were interested. Since you were a little boy, you were interested in the military. And then you, you know, acted out on those dreams. You know, what, what, I think you said two days after you graduated high school, you were in a car heading to the Army. And, and I mean, you, it sounded like, you know, as you described, you had kind of um, – I don't know, in one way, a very wholesome, you know, childhood, but in the other way, kind of sheltered, you said it was the first time you'd ever seen an airplane. Yeah, it, we were pretty poor, so we didn't travel much and we didn't go outside of our, our circle of friends much. And I was very sheltered in that way, um, primarily because we didn't have money to go anywhere or to do anything. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're really poor, everything you see is something you can't have. And it it was kind of it wasn't that bad, but it was near that bad for us. So um, yeah, it's just uh, first time going in the airplane was just there was just so much new stuff as as a kid when I joined the army. And just like you said, I graduated high school June first, June third. I was on the airplane going to to basic training, and I had always been drawn to the military as a kid. I loved the old army shows and anything that that was army-ish I was into and um I hopefully you know early on there were a couple of reasons why I wanted to leave one was because there was no way I was going to college and um we just didn't have the funds and and number two is I knew if I stayed in my little hometown I I would just find trouble so and my decision was made easier and people going into the service these days have a hard decision because they may find themselves overseas in, in a combat zone, and I didn't have to make that decision. I was, I was getting money for college, and I was wanting to be the best soldier I, I could be. And that's the furthest thing from my mind at that point. And I'm, I'm not sure if you guys were uh, young men back then, but it was the furthest thing from everybody's mind at that point was conflict. So it was easy for me. Yeah, I mean, this is before my time, of course. Um, but you know, I remember actually one of my first memories is watching the Gulf War on television <laughs> on CNN. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, that was my first uh, deployment 
uh, in, into a conflict, conflict zone, but I was far from the conflict. My first three years in the Army was, uh, I was not a, a, an action guy, if you will. Yeah, you were in an uh, air defense unit, right? Yeah, and for um, most of your listeners, I'm sure that, that they all know that the air defense was is essentially not a branch anymore. I think the only things that are around air defense-wise are the Patriots, which was a superstar of, of the Desert Shield and Desert Storm. If you remember back, mm-hmm. they were shooting down the, the Scud missiles and stuff. What a great system, but I think the only systems there are the, are the Patriots and, and the Stingers and the Avengers, the, the man portable stuff and the, the mobile the vehicle-mounted stuff. So I, I guess from there we talk about your ambition to become a ranger. Like that, it sounds like in, that was something that you always wanted to do and that you dreamed of. You know that you were learning how to be a soldier in air defense, but really you had something bigger in mind. Yeah, it was. It was uh, when I first joined the army. I thought uh, you know I was going to be a paratrooper jumping out of airplanes, and I was. Uh, going to be like the guys in the longest day and fighting on the war and because my job description when i enlisted was i think it was air defense artillery operations and intelligence assistant and then i was i was going to airborne school so i thought hey yeah this is it little did i realize i'd be jumping out the of the airplane with a with a typewriter <laughs> instead of a rifle <laughs> and uh, but um yeah my first three years three and a half years in the army um were a struggle for me because I, I all I wanted to do was be the best soldier I could be and be around sold, other soldiers who wanted to be like me. And as you all know, that's hit and miss in the military. And um, most of the soldiers around me at that point in time just wanted to do their thing and then be done with it. I, I poured my heart and soul into what I was doing. And I had a issue with people who were around me that weren't like me. And I, during my first three and a half years in the army, I learned of the Rangers and I was like, all right, that's, that's my goal. That's where I want to go. That's where I'm going to be. And, and I put my head down and pushed forward and, and eventually got there. One thing I, I was kind of blown away from or, or blown away by was when you got to, uh, well, they call it RASP now, but back in the day, you know, what I went through, you went through is, is called uh, the Ranger Indoctrination Program. When you went, you said you couldn't swim. Uh, you have to take a combat survival test, but you literally showed up being unable to swim. Yeah. Well, I, I, it was sheer heart and desire because I had no <laughs> skill to survive in the water. And, I, and I'm just being brutally honest with you is it was my passion to be mm-hmm. a ranger. And I was, yeah. to be honest with you, to that point in my life and even up to probably selection and post-selection, that, that was the biggest hurdle in my life. And, and it seems simple for people who can swim. And, it, and they look at me and made me listen and say, what is he talking about? Well, the, the reality is, I, I was sinking to the bottom and I clawed and kicked my way and I never quit just like my dad uh, taught us. And um, I got to the end and it took me about four times longer than the lowest, the slowest swimmer around me. And but you, I, but you grew I up in, a, in, in, in New Mexico too, where I mean, and, and you know, like you said, you had a, you know, a, a kind of a poor upbringing. Uh, you didn't have a lot of opportunities. I mean, there weren't like exactly ocean sides and swimming pools, uh, you know, that you grew up around. Right, right. And I think a, a part of it was when I was in Sonora, Mexico, we we would run around the villages all day long without 
parental supervision. <laughs> and one particular time, we um, we were with the village kids, and we ran to a canal. And there was, it was a, a large canal. It was probably 15 or 20 feet wide, and it was probably 10 feet deep. And there was a water pipe going across it, and all the older boys from the village would climb on the water pipe and then jump into the canal. Well, I did that too, but I couldn't swim and I sank to the bottom. And I can remember looking up through the water and it was just like in the movies, it went black. <laughs> oh man. And I, I basically drowned and wow. one of the village boys saved my life. I said, I don't know the guy's name. And, um, he, I felt pain on the top of my head. And next thing I know is I'm coming to on the side of the canal and all the boys are looking at me like, what's going on? And, wow. I, and they were speaking in Spanish saying he, he, I jerked him out. He basically grabbed the top of my hair and dragged <laughs> oh me out gosh. of the water and saved my life or I would have been dead. That's got to be a crazy so, thing to reflect on because when you think about it, it's like your story and all these great stories you tell from there in your military career, it, it could have ended right there. Right. Yeah. And, and, not a whole lot of people know about that. I didn't tell my mom till I was a man that that happened. Because <laughs> as a kid, I didn't want to get whooped when I got home, you know, by my by my dad. Well, like you said, I mean, I'm running around doing crazy stuff with the kids. <laughs> you know, you pushed through it because you had a passion for for your job, you know, and put your heart into it. And um, and you also talk about you know in the book your uh, your ranger buddy helping you learn how to swim and getting you ready for that event, right? Yeah, I tell you what, the, I learned so much in that short amount of time. Um, and the biggest influence at that time was my ranger buddy, Michael J. A. Vox. And um, we're, we stay in contact to this day. And, and what was unique about Mike and I, we were ranger buddies in um, the ranger indoctrination program. And then we went to pre-ranger together because he was in the same boat that I was. We went to ranger school together, got assigned to the same team which is incredible. <laughs> yeah. And so we were ranger buddies through the entire process. I don't know how that happened, but um, we saw everything together and, and he helped me uh, more probably than I helped him through all of that, all of those challenges. And I'll never forget Mike. That's super cool. And, um, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you about, cause this is a little bit unique um, by comparison to most rangers was that, you were what we would we called, you know, a quote unquote import, um, which, are, as you write about in the book, are not always viewed favorably because for people who aren't aware in the Ranger Regiment, most guys um, are raised in the regiment, so to speak. You come in from basic training, you go to airborne school, you go to RIP, and then you end up in Ranger Battalion if you graduate. And uh, Rob, you know, as we talked about, served in the air defense unit, reclassed his infantry, went to RIP. So he was a uh, and then you went to Ranger School, too. So you were a tab spec for coming to Ranger Battalion. You want to talk about, uh, you know, you had as far as gaining the respect of your peer group, you know, kind of the odds were stacked against you, it felt like. Yeah. And just to kind of preface my statements here is that I got to the Ranger Regiment and um in 92, I was assigned to 2nd Battalion Alpha Company, 2nd Platoon Black Sheep, and there was no conflict. So it was, we, we were essentially a band of warriors looking for a fight, and we were trying to, you know, people were held in high regard in that unit who were physically fit, um, mentally tough, and kind of knew their job very well. So I come in there, 
I'm physically fit. They don't know anything about my mental status or, or anything else about me. And um, I have no experience, none. I was pushing paper for three and a half years, and then, oh, I'm going to go be a ranger. So I wasn't viewed favorably. And also the fact that when you grow up in the ranger, in the ranger community, um, you basically, you, you earn your way to be a leader there. And, and being a ranger private, I would say today, and even more so, you know, when I got there in the early 90s, his life as a ranger private was, was hard. <laughs> I don't like to cuss or anything, but it's hell. It is living, living hell. And um, I never experienced any of that. I never lived it. I never lived through that. And um, it took me, you know, four months, five months for for everybody around me to realize that, that I was a, a leader of character and I had the ability. And I think what they all wanted to see was the fact that I wasn't going to quit them or, or fall short of being... A, a good ranger and um once they realized that they opened their arms to me and and, and boy i tell you what it, it it was the best time in my life to that point and in my career and my life um just to be serving there because i was where i wanted to be around the people that i wanted to be they, they were all just like me and i loved it you found what you were looking for in the regiment absolutely right and i grew up so much i became a man if you will and, and I, my, all of my tactical background and knowledge and, and everything I learned in the Ranger Regiment. What, what a wonderful, wonderful place. And I, the friends that I have there are still friends with me to this day and uh, the best friends that, that I will ever have. And, yeah, what, what a wonderful part of my life. I loved it. It was difficult. And, and that part of the, the reason why I loved it is the struggle, right? Mm-hmm. And, and nothing was given to me. And because of that, I had to fight for what, what I wanted, and that really made my character shine through. And I, it wasn't perfect. I didn't learn everything right away. It took some time, and eventually I became uh, the, the leader that I wanted to be there and the type of person that I wanted to be. You have a so, lot of yeah, my time in there. There's a, a lot of responsibility put on you as well as a young man in, in Ranger Battalion. Yeah, it, 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 it was, and not so much... Um, uh, personal wise, you know, I was, it was just me, but I really took to, to heart the fact that, that, that all of the guys in my squad. And when I was a team leader, all the guys in my team, I was responsible for, and I, mm-hmm. I did not, um, t- view that lightly. I took, you know, that to heart and the fact that I wanted to take care of the guys. And, and to be quite honest with you, that's what made me want to be a better, a better leader and a better soldier. A, a well-rounded person and soldier, if you will. Both. As they used to say back then, you got to be technically and tactically proficient. And boy, I, I did my best to be that. You want to talk a little bit about what it was like in Ranger Battalion back in those days? You said you were like a, a, a tribe of warriors looking for a fight. And um, I imagine a lot of training exercises, um, getting ready, trying to imagine what the next conflict was going to look like. Yeah, and, I, and that's a good point, too, because to bring up primarily because the, the U.S. military, we're, we focus on the last fight that we've had. So mm-hmm. in the early 90s in the Ranger Regiment, the last fight that we had was Vietnam. And, and you know, before that, there was, a, there was a Grenada and then Panama. And that was all sort of 
tactics-wise, the same sort of thing. So in, in the early 90s, when I got to the Ranger Regiment, we did a lot of patrolling in the woods. And so we would prep our gear come Monday, jump in Monday night, walk around um, doing ambushes and patrol uh, patrol bases and raids and so forth, and then walk 20 miles in Thursday night, clean weapons till the blue ink comes off on <laughs> Friday, and then get get the weekend off, right? So we did that a lot. And, and, and I tell you what, I learned a lot about myself back then because it was tough. It, it, was, it really made you uh, a hardened warrior to do that. I'm not saying that, that going around and, and, and training specifically for an urban fight isn't tough, but when you're walking around yeah. the Pacific Northwest absolutely soaked to the bone, it's 30 degrees out and you have your poncho liner and the first sergeant hasn't given you permission to put your Gore-Tex on yet. So you're just suffering there. It makes you a hard, hard soldier. And, um, I attribute my success in selection to my time in the Ranger Regiment, specifically when, um, uh, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel, um, uh, got, um, what was his name? He was a JSOC commander. Uh, McChrystal? McChrystal, yes. I can't believe. Sorry, um, uh, retired General McChrystal for forgetting your name. I typically <laughs> don't. But um, he was a huge influence in the Ranger Battalion at, at the time and specifically for myself when I was in, in the Ranger Regiment. And Because um, uh, he instituted a, a, a battalion-wide policy that um, – each Ranger rifle squad had to road march a minimum, I, I think it was like 12 or 14 miles a week. Jeez. So, and then, so as a squad leader, I said, the battalion commander says we're going to walk 12 miles. Guess how far we're walking? We're walking 15. <laughs> and then next week we're walking 18. And you know how it is, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Exceed so, the standard. So because of that, you know, we were just hard, hard Rangers back then. And, and it made me mentally tough and physically strong just like the ranges are today. I'm curious about, you know, from someone who has a inside perspective on McChrystal, because from what you read and from interviews he's done, like he is such a strict and, and really just out there um, regiment when it comes to sleeping, eating, training. Um, it, it's just like the amount of hours he sleeps at night. I think he said something like four or five hours, right? It's like it's really out there. Right. Yeah, I was, I was super fortunate to, to have, I think, a closer relationship with, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel McChrystal, and then later when he was the JSOC commander, because um, when he was the battalion commander, I was the, uh, 70, the 75th Ranger Regiment NCO of the year. So I think because of that, he knew of me. You know, most squad leaders in the Ranger Battalion aren't known by the battalion commander. Well, I think that's what helped him remind remember me and i can remember being uh, deployed in iraq and linking up with him he wanted to talk with me and he said go go to my hooch i'll be there in about 15 or 20 minutes i have this meeting and he just wanted to talk to me about some stuff we were doing overseas in, in iraq and um, so i go to his hooch and his hooch looks like mine and here he is the jsoc commander he's sleeping on a, a makeshift cot very minimal support that he's got a little lamp and some books next to his bed nothing fancy i was like wow this is a man of character he's living just like that just like i am which is 
somewhat unheard of, you know, in, in the military ranks. And he's a three-star general at that time. And I was like, okay, this guy is the same person that I knew in the Ranger Regiment when he was our battalion commander, because we loved him. Everybody loved him. And even as a JSOC commander, everybody loved him. So. I guess that's just what that, like, stay hungry mentality of that you're you're going to keep living that way and not, you know, get too pampered to, uh, you know, to break out of your old ways and old habits. Yeah, I think that he's always been that way. And I think a part of him was just, hey, if he's asking his people to do something, he wants to do it just like them or, or to the best of his ability. And, and it really hit home when I when I was talking to him and, and we were just sitting there by his bunk and nothing special. I was like, wow, this guy and, and his questions to me were insightful and, and he was just trying to get pers- my perspective, which meant a lot to me at the time. I'm just a lonely. I think I was an E7 or an E8 at the time, but he still remembered me because he was I was one of his soldiers and he was a battalion commander in the second battalion. Sounds so, like a true leader. What, what a great man. Not, I have nothing negative and all positive things to say about General McChrystal. Rob, what then took you on your path um, to the unit? You started, you know, you're a ranger, you're quite accomplished. Um, I think you, you said in the book that you became squad leader. And what made you decide that this was the next step for your career? That's a great question. So what, what happened to me was um, I'd served almost three and a half years in the Ranger Regiment. I had earned the respect of everybody around me. In my company alone, you could ask anybody there, and they knew of me. And and I was held in high regard, I, I think, looking back at it. Um, and even the company commander and, and our first sergeant at the time knew me and, and would rely on me for a lot. And so I, I got a little bit cocky. I was like, hey, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I'm, I was just a young guy, right? I had 22, 23 years old. And I have all this respect by everybody around me, and we get an influx of leadership in my platoon, and and they're basically telling me what to do when when I had been there and earned my way, and I'm like, hey, things are changing, and and I was like, okay, the platoon leader and the platoon sergeant are trying to make me do things different than what I want to do. It, I'm leaving. I was just a young punk, looking back at it, right, and um, so. I realized, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just being upset. I'm going to go special forces. I'm going to do something else. Well, at that point in time, a special missions unit recruiter came to the second battalion and it was, must've been divine intervention because this was, I was right there ready to do something. And they came in, I took the TT test, all the psych evals and everything. And I was accepted to go to selection. It wasn't the it wasn't necessarily a goal at that point in time. I think the timing was just right for me and, um, and for me professionally at the time and personally, I was just like, okay, this is it. This is my shot. I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. And did, was selection, you know, uh, a challenge for you? Was it even, you know, as a uh, young in shape ranger, was it kind of a kick in the pants? It, it was. And, um, but, it was really weird too because I didn't know a thing about the selection at all. I didn't know <laughs> oh, really? anything. I, I and I really didn't. I didn't want to know anything. I had heard some stories, but I just I didn't know. So all I knew was the packet that they gave me, and I was like, okay, this is going to be 
a, a, a monumental task. And so what I had envisioned or prepared myself mentally for was worse in my head than what actually selection was. Mm-hmm. So that I was expecting a lot. Not to, not, I'm not saying that selection wasn't hard. It was, but what I had created in my mind was, was, was tougher. So I was like, okay, not, I, like I said, the selection was a kick in the pants for sure. And I, I have some scars on my feet to prove that, but <laughs> mentally I was prepared for a lot worse. And, um, and I think that you have to be that way. Um, in order to be successful. I think if you were to ask any, everybody who's been successful or not successful, but they attended selection, they would probably tell you the same thing, that mentally they had prepared for, for the absolute worst, and that's exactly where I was mentally at the time. Well, it's, yeah, it's a, tough, man. Super it, tough. It's interesting you say that, Rob, because you just must have a – well, I, I think like you already talked about before, you had an incredible passion for what you were doing, but – a lot of guys end up quitting selection, various um, you know soft selection courses, because they do what you did and they build the course up to be something much much more difficult and uh, in their mind it becomes unattainable. Right, and and to be quite honest with you, when I got to to the to selection, there's about a hundred of us there and. And these guys are were legendary. Like all mo- the majority of the Rangers there, even those that weren't in Second Battalion, I knew of, because these guys were best Ranger competitors who had won and or at least finished it. So they were legends in the Ranger Regiment mm-hmm. themselves. And I get there and I'm like, holy cow, these are my peers. These are the guys that I'm that are here with me. And I'm like, okay, this is it, man. Is he, you know? And I think part of my upbringing helped me push through that because mm-hmm. I didn't quit. You, you can't quit. You know, that's just a part of who I am. And I think that helped me in selection. When you got selected and, you know, made it through the initial operators training, what what was it like when you got to your first team? It was great. It was great. You know, when I, when I graduated or you know, there's no ceremony or anything, but when you finish the training course and you get assigned to, to your first team and they tell you where you're going. We come back as a class and I'm talking to my teammates and we're literally in 10 minutes going to link up with our teams. Um, I talked to one of my buddies and I say, Hey, um, are you, are you excited or how do you feel? He's like, heck yeah, I want to go. And I said, I, I said, I, I feel excited too, but I, I hope I'm good enough to be assigned to a team because I'd held these guys in such high regard. Right. I don't want to be the weak link, weak link on the team. And my buddy's like, dude, you just go and do your best. That's all you can do. And what a profound statement he set me yeah, on before yeah. I went to, to my team. And I was like, that's all I can do. And that's all you can ask of anybody in this life is do your best. So I got there and I, it was what I had imagined and even more. It was awesome. It was great. It's so cool. You talked about some of those early lessons learned. Um, Actually, uh, I think the point I'm at in the book is when you were talking about how you you can describe why this happened or how it happened, but you were a junior leader, relatively junior um, team member, and it was like they assigned you to um, plan and execute an entire training mission. Yeah, so what a great learning experience that was for me at the time. It was so difficult, but it was great for me. So uh, t- sporadically during the year, they would get, um, they called it, I can't remember the exact wording, but what they would do is they would get 
all the junior guys on all the teams together and they would make them leaders. And so all the team members around me that were junior near my peer class were like almost brand new guys on this particular training um, mission. We were the leaders and, you know, our leaders would guide us a little bit, but they basically let us plan and, and execute. So when we get into the briefing room, um, I walk in there and I realize, wow, everybody's junior to me. I'm the most senior guy of all the junior guys, if that makes any sense. And they look at me and they say, hey, you're in charge. <laughs> they threw, the, <laughs> threw me under the bus, man. And I'm like, all right, I got it. So I was like, I was in charge of the whole thing and, and not just the whole thing, but even for my team at the time. And, and boy, what a, what a learning experience that was. And, um, just the, just dealing with, with everybody. And that was the first time that I had to stand up in front of everybody in my unit and talk professionally. And and, and wow, just looking back at it, I, I had the same feeling that I had back then. And it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was a quite a, an experience for me and, and it, it helped me grow, become a better soldier and a better leader for, without a doubt. Before we move on to, you know, everything that happened after nine 11, were there some other memorable moments, some important things in your uh, career um, that you can talk about in as far as, you know, what you're able to talk about. When I first got to, to my, to this unit, all of the team leaders at the time were, you know, nine, 10, 11 years in the unit. And, and in the same, uh, many of them still on the same team. So when they asked me to become a team leader, I only had four and a half years in the unit. And I was, I was like, okay, what, what's, what's going on here? They're asking me, I'm a very junior guy with regards to my peers at that point in time. So I had to, I had to come to some sort of reasoning on whether or not I would accept this, this leadership position. And it, the bottom line is it came down to me realizing that one, yes, I was capable of being a leader in the, in the organization. And two, it was time to man up. And, and cause I had held my leaders in such a, to such a high standard. It was time for me to soldier up and say, now I'm going to do what I expected my leaders to be and do when I was below them. So, that was a huge event for me becoming a, a, a leader in the organization. So I had, I had to take all my lessons learned. And I, had, I had, to this point in my career, when I was in the Ranger Regiment and the early years in the organization, I had kept a notebook of, of running things that my leaders did great and, and my leaders didn't do great. And, and I, I took my notebook out and said, here's how I'm going to do. Here's the path I'm going based on what I've seen in my life. And I'm going to, take what my father and my parents gave me and what I've learned from my other leaders and push forward and try to be do the best that I could do. Must have been incredible. And so you rose up through the, the ranks in the unit. Um, did you find that it was sort of the same situation in Ranger Battalion in as far as you were training and waiting for the outbreak of war? Or, you know, did they keep you guys pretty busy? Oh, they kept us super, super busy. So what I, you know, like I said, the, the U.S. military is always fighting the last war we had just been in. And when I got to um, to the unit, there was the Battle of Mogadishu, mm-hmm. which was hanging over the organization at the time. And um, so that's where we were at mentally. 
and, and tactics wise and everything and huge lessons learned lessons learned during that battle and um, so that's where we were at and we stayed super super busy and just to a couple of things that I'd like to say is sure. is um, just to cover um, when when I was going through the training course there there was a point and I can't put my finger on it but at some point it was like a, a light switch went off in my brain um, and I'll describe that here in just a second so up until that point when the light switch was off, I always felt like I had to ask permission to do something. Even my as a squad leader in the Ranger Regiment, as an example, I know the right thing to do is X, but I still wouldn't do it because I didn't have permission. When the light switch went on for me when I was in the training course, I can remember the instructors telling us, hey, we we don't just want you to do the right thing. We expect you to do it without guidance. Mm -hmm. And that was liberating to me. It was just, I just could not believe that they were giving me this, the autonomy to, to do what is right, regardless of what it is. And not only that they're giving me the authority to do this, but they expected me to do it. Now, what a, and nowhere else have I been, I've been working with the law enforcement community and the military since my retirement in 2009, there is no other organization that that actually functions that way, or, or to be quite honest, you possibly can't function that way because there must be oversight. Where in, in this organization, it was the oversight is 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 given to you. You, you know, you can hang yourself or you can do the right thing. It's up to you. You do the right thing. That so they trusted so, you to do your job. Yes, and it was so liberating to me I, it was I, I loved the organization because of that the culture there was just incredible and you were still serving in the unit when 9-11 happened yeah I was a, a team leader at the time when when September 11th happened and and um yeah what what a, a, a horrible time period for for Americans um and then for those of us that were in the military at the time, you know, we kicked off the war and no one had any um, true fighting experience for a prolonged conflict like this. And, and I was one of them and I was a leader. And for all the listeners out there, you know, whether in a law enforcement or the military or a civilian in a job, what have you, I think most people were like me at the time. You know, looking forward, I have no true combat experience. You know, some small things here and there, but nothing to the magnitude of full-on conflict. So we question our ability in, in time of crisis. And I was no different. I was in the back of my head is that, will I do the right thing when the rubber meets the road and chaos is around me and bad things are happening to good people? will I do the right thing? And I think people in our community and people who, who are, who've never served in the military just need to understand that, one, if you have good character, you will do the right thing. If you have good training, good realistic training, you will do the right thing. If you have trust in the people around you, you will do the right thing. If you have those three things, you will do the right thing. And it rang true for me. 
Can you tell us at all about what it was like for you when the rubber did meet the asphalt? Yeah, I, I think um, it was it was it was odd because um, just to put everything into perspective, when when I deployed to Afghanistan in late two thousand one, um, so it, we were so new to the war, we didn't have maps. Like we didn't have maps of the of the area. We didn't have a lot of the supporting mechanism. There are very few helicopters in the country so and we were spread out throughout the country and i was about an hour away from from kabul which is you know a 60 minute flight just to get help if anything happened so um we were in essentially bad guy country with a very small number of people and the rubber hit hit the asphalt if you will and we in our little team we got uh uh, one of our fellow team members was killed. This was 24 hours after inserting oh to, into coast. So we lose a, a, a fellow soldier and we get a number of other individuals killed in a, a handful of Afghan, um, uh, Afghanis killed and, and injured as well during our initial conflict and, or, or during the initial engagement. And um, I'm the leader on the ground. I've never had to deal with anything like this. And essentially the war slapped me smack in the face. Mm. And I had to realize real quick what, what, what my character was. And like I said, I had the right people around me. I, I had the proper training and my character drove what I wanted to do at that point in time. And it was the right thing. So, yeah, it was truly, truly um, a wild country because... I, I could have done anything I wanted to do. I could have said, let's get out of here. We're going, we're going back um, to Kabul. I could have said, we're going to stay here. Send me as many people as you can, it, whatever, because no one, it was so early in the war, there were no rules. There, there really were no rules. I, could, I was a leader on the ground. I could have done anything I wanted. So we stayed put and continued with our mission after, after getting beat up pretty good there on, on our first day on the ground. That's incredible. And, and how long was that depo- that initial deployment then in, in 2001? Okay, so I, I, got, I got there in December, and we didn't leave. Obviously, after that, the military started their rotations into Afghanistan, and the special operations community did too, the Ranger Regiment and mm-hmm. everybody else. Um, so I came, I came home for two weeks in May and then deployed right back because – our rotation, my unit came forward. I was separate from my unit when I initially went in. There was just a handful of us. While my unit was still back in the States, I deployed. And then when they started their rotations, they came in in May, I think. I went home for two weeks and came back and, and served with them until July or August, I think. So, And then the rotation started and it hasn't stopped and it's still going. That's incredible. And uh, and then a few years later, Iraq kicks off. Yep. And you guys started rotations there as well. Yeah, we sure did. Yeah, was, we were part of the initial invasion force as well. And um, so we did a, a piece of a train-up for that before, before the actual invasion here stateside. And then um, during the invasion, we 
I think we spent about uh, two months um, during the initial invasion and got relieved, and we started our rotations into Iraq all over again. I wanted to bring up, um, because I I see that you had written about it before, um, you know, the summer of 2005 um, that you write about a little. And, you know, I was in Iraq in the summer of 2005. So, I mean, I know what you're talking about when you say how uh, how busy it was at that time. And, you know, your unit, you know, there are two men lost, uh, Sergeant Horrigan and Sergeant McNulty. And I was wondering if you uh, were willing to tell us a little bit about your teammates and, um, you know, the sacrifice that they made. Yeah, so in, in 2005, on June 1st, when we lost Steve, um, that was our, the catalyst for change for us. And I was a leader on the ground at the time. So those of us on the ground realized we've got to, we've got to change and um, specifically on tactics because what we were doing wasn't working. And we realized that just by the sheer numbers of, uh, of um, guys that were getting hurt. And then, it, and then on June 1st, we really, really got chewed up. Steve died. And then Mike was down hard. I lost two team leaders that not lost, but guys got injured to the point to where they had to leave the battlefield and I had a handful of other guys that were suffering gunshot wounds either through the leg or, 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 or hand grenade wounds. Bottom line is we got chewed up really, really bad. And that was the first time that we had seen anything like this as an organization since probably the Battle of Mogadishu. And um, so for those of us on the ground, it was pretty simple. We, we needed to change tactics in, in order to continue to press the fight because in its simplest form for me um, as the leader, I couldn't keep doing the same thing because I'm losing too many people. But on a personal side and a professional side, we, I'm doing a disservice to the people around me if I keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. You know, that's Einstein's definition of insanity, you know, doing the same thing and expecting different results didn't happen so I basically said okay we're changing stuff and luckily for me at the time my junior leader supported me and that that was the catalyst for change within the organization as it relates to tactics and even more so is just the philosophy on on fighting and because in as you well know in our community no one wants to be viewed as being risk averse or being a coward so I had to change that a little bit, the philosophy within the people in the organization to where we're not being cowards or we're not being a risk averse. We're just being smarter. And, right. and you just have to ask yourself, is this worth it? And I'll tell you, it's not. And um, so that was a, the biggest thing for me at that point. When, when Steve died, I said, it's not going to be in vain. We're going to make some changes, doggone it. And for the people who were underneath me that didn't want to change, I shoved it down their throats because I knew it was the right thing to do. <laughs> this was a, I, I mean, I thank you for that, Rob. Um, and I, I think this is really a, a, what you're talking about, what you're referring to is a moment where we were evolving tactically and trying to evolve into turning combat into an operational art. Yes. yes. And, and unfortunately for a lot of us, even myself included and those of us, uh, um, that were and everybody that was there on, on June 1st when Steve died was also there 
on June 17th when Mike and Bob died and, and we knew what the right thing to do. And we had just had to be smarter and, and not, uh, not just put our helmets down and push forward and accept mm-hmm. our licks because that's what the way it is. We said, no, we got to be smarter, man. And, and we took it to the next level. And then with, the, with our tactics and, and to this day, I'm sure these guys are, the tactics are continually evolving. I would imagine. That's, uh, you know, something that I, I think I really benefited from, you know, serving in, in the Ranger Regiment and then Special Forces was that your unit did so much to innovate tactics. And that stuff eventually bled down to other units. You know, my, my, my platoon and Ranger Battalion was trained by uh, an operator on, you know, I think some of the tactical techniques that you're referring to. And, and I mean, we, we learned a tremendous amount from those guys. Yeah, and and that's a a byproduct of being in the organization is we try to share as much of that. It it was probably one of the hardest things I had to do on right after our after action review when we lost Steve. Uh, the team members went went to their team rooms and were doing their thing. I stayed up and and basically created a PowerPoint after action review and sent it to the entire command so that they could I could share those lessons. Um, with everybody that was on the battlefield. And I mean, even the guys back home were getting our situation reports and so forth. And my, and my intent was to, hey, here's our mistakes. Here's what we I think we did wrong, and here's what we'd like to try to do to fix it, sort of. And, um, yeah, and then, and all of that bled down into the Ranger Regiment. And even to this day, I just did a training evolution um uh, as part of Evergreen Mountain, my business with First Special Forces Group just last month, and the tactics that they're running are, are a byproduct of what happened to us in 2005, and and they're running, you know, changed tactics to where um, they make more sense and it's smarter. And, and and the bottom line is that you're absolutely right. You know, all of that needs to be shared in order for it to be beneficial and, and for it to be the right thing to do. What were some other changes that you saw in the force? Um, because you were there for quite a while. You said you retired in 2009. What, what, what were some of the other things you saw change or evolve during that time frame? The, the biggest thing that I saw was um, the biggest change that I saw specifically in my unit was a, a change in mindset and, and change in, in, in culture. And it wasn't the the equipment. It wasn't all the new whiz bang, new velcro stuff. It wasn't the new pants or, or whatever, right? And for me, it was just a change in culture and change in mindset, philosophy as it relates to to war and conducting uh, warfare against the enemy. Because up until this point in, in conflict, or specifically in 2005, we did. We conducted, we fought one way, one way, and that was it. And then after 2005, as an organization, we're shifting to realize that we have to do what makes sense, not what we practice all the time. And not that practice isn't isn't good, you have to train, but the reality is, is up until that point, we had done our business one way, and we realized we we can't do it one way, we have to... Change and adapt to what's happening on the ground. Make smart decisions on the ground, as opposed to just putting your helmet down. So, for me personally, that was the biggest change that I saw was um, 
was in the unit was the change in culture and mindset and philosophy as it applies to conflict. Um, I think that the next biggest change I saw was in the U.S. military because all of the senior leaders that say when September 11th first started, all the battalion commanders, all the experience that they had were just live fire iterations and training in the U.S. Well, eventually those platoon leaders who served time in and units, ground units, in 2002 and 2003 and 2004. Now they're company commanders, battalion commanders in 2009, 2010, and that's where the huge change is at, right? Where before the the, the lieutenant colonel, battalion commanders, brigade commanders didn't have ground-level mm-hmm. experience fighting. Well, now we do, which is huge because now those those leaders who are brigade commanders, division commanders, were actually fighting as lieutenants in the war on terror, whether they were in Iraq or Afghanistan. You can't replace that experience as a leader as you move up. But now they have some perspective um, to draw from as they move up. And that has changed the military for the better. Do you have any concerns um, about operational stress, be it on you know special operations units or even on the military as a whole, that, you know, we've been deploying guys over and over again, um, that the force is just getting strained over time. Absolutely, man. I mean, it's, it's, we're all human. We're all human. It's just because you're assigned to one unit or another doesn't mean that you, all right, you show up, here's some magic dust, they dust throw on you, <laughs> and then um, you're just this changed person. It's just, it, you know, it, 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 you get there and you train and you get the proper mindset, so it's, it's time, right? But it's, we're all human as well, and everybody has a breaking point, whether we want to believe it or not. And uh, and and absolutely, I have some concern. I think that the army or the, the military overall should do a better job of of informing these new soldiers coming in of, of the stresses of the realities of their profession. I mean, we do uh, the military is doing a great great job of screening for PTSD prior to departing from the military, we need to do a better job of informing people of the realities of their of their profession before they sign the paper to come into the military, to give them a chance to let them know what the reality is, and um, to kind of set the stage and let them know. Because that's something I never had to deal with when I, when I joined, and I don't know right. if the process has changed or not. But the reality is, is definitely there is an impact. And there's individuals who joined the Army in 2002 and have been deploying since 2002. So for 18 years, all these soldiers know, you know, 15, 18, however many years they've been in is conflict. Yeah. You can't tell me those guys are stressed. And how do they are not stressed? I'm sorry. And how do you return to, you know, normal life after all of that, after you've been deployed, you know, 15 times, 18 times or whatever, um, was it difficult for you when, you know, when you decided to retire in 2009? I think the difficulty of just separating myself from, from who, who I was, was the hardest thing. Um, cause that was my personal professional identity mm-hmm. and I didn't know anything else. I was immersed in, in, in that culture and I was, um, just like I did in the Ranger Regiment, you know, I poured my heart and soul into what I was doing, and then now it's time to leave. I think that was the difficult part. It wasn't for me personally. It wasn't 
having to deal with the with any other issues. It was just the reality of, of me not being who I was, either personally and professionally. Looking back at it now, I, I, I've come to terms with it, but I still I still dream about it. Just two nights ago, I was <laughs> I had a dream that I was back there. There's no way I could hang with those guys these days. <laughs> I had to dream about it, right? <laughs> How long do you think it took yeah. you to, to, you know, you use the term, you know, you say you came to terms with it. And uh, I, I think I did the same, uh, it, but it took years for my, like my brain yeah. to readjust. Absolutely. It took me at, at least two and a half or three years. And the first year was the most difficult. And um, just this gnawing inside of me, I, I would at least once a day, one just want to pick up the phone and ask to come back and then, and, and and then the next year was a little bit easier. The next year was just a little bit easier. And then eventually it got to the point to where, okay, I can do this. I, I can be a different person now. Um, and, and yeah, like with everything, the test of time rang true for me with regards to that. It just took some time. What have you done on the outside to, you know, now that you're out to build a life for yourself? Yeah, so uh, I've been retired almost 10 years now, and it seems like just yesterday, but uh, <laughs> I started my own business, and um, so it's a training company. We do a lot of uh, training for the law enforcement community, uh, and we do everything that the that, that job requires. We work, to, we work with uh, police officers doing active shooter stuff. We, do, we work with schools doing active shooter stuff. We work with tactical teams doing SWAT training, whether it's shooting tactics, running the ballistic shield, which is something that I've, I've pushed and, you know, something that I've learned over the years with regards to the law enforcement community. I have a ton of experience fighting overseas. Um, and I don't have a lot of experience or no experience actually being a police officer in the, in the state. So when I initially started my training company, I would just regurgitate the tactics and the mindset and the philosophy and everything that I had overseas and trained the, the, the police officers that were attending my training courses. It's not the right thing to do. And it took me a couple of years to realize. And, and what, when it came to a head, I had, a, I have a very good working relationship with the Indiana, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, their SWAT team. And I've been working with them since every year, at least a couple of times, three or four years, three or four times a year since probably 2010 or 2011. And um, they were, they adopted my tactics and on one of their warrant services, they, they got shot up at the breach point. And I was like, I, 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 I was concerned because um, these guys trusted me and um, I'm giving them, this information and it's not helping them. I said, I said, okay, I need to start learning again. I can't be the teacher because what I'm teaching them isn't working. So I have to learn. So I started learning more about their job, their lifestyle, you know, and their equipment and so forth. I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go learn about the ballistic shield because I think that would have helped them when they got shot up. And the only reason why none of them got killed is they were lucky there's no skill in dodging bullets, right? <laughs> so they so they got several of them got got shot in the arm and non-lethal impacts. But the reality was that they were just, they were just lucky. So I started learning again, man. I took a couple of ballistic shield courses from some a good friend, a police officer friend of mine, and um, 
I was like, yeah, this is it. I'm incorporating ballistic shield in, in, into what I teach for tactical teams, which is I'm sure I'm the only unit member out there that does that. But I, I firmly believe that that's one piece of equipment that they have at their disposable, which we do not overseas. And I would like to change that overseas too. I think and it doesn't solve all our problems overseas, but when it makes sense, right. it can be used well. So, uh, so that's where I'm at right now. Um, the lion's share of my work is for the law enforcement community. Um, I still do some work. Like I said, I worked with first group last month and doing some other stuff here for the army, um, next month. And, but those, those are few and far between. I, I have a good following in the law enforcement community right now, which is something I'd like to change because I'd like, I, I'd love to work with the military. And, yeah. and where, where is, uh, Evergreen's home base? I am, I live in New Mexico, but I have a, I have access to a training facility just outside south of uh, Colorado Springs. So we have everything there that we can run, um, driving high speed um off-road stuff i do we can do medical classes i could do obviously ranges and shoot houses and stuff but sim stuff but pretty much the full gamut there in this facility just south of colorado springs very cool because i i wonder you know with our audience there's we have so many people on who do tactical training courses out of different areas of the country and uh, people in our audience, whether they're civilians or former military, are into that type of thing. So I figure um, if someone wants to take a class from a guy with a really excellent background like yours, um, it'd be really cool to check out. So it's evergreenmountainusa.com. And I, and I assume you work with civilians as well. It's not just uh, law enforcement, right? Absolutely. And um, what I do is I, I just screen uh, the, the civilians because I don't want what I teach to get into the wrong hands as, sure. as I think everybody out, all of your listeners will understand. So, um, yeah, I just do make sure you're a U.S. citizen and you're not uh, part of a hate group or a terrorist. And, and then, yeah, tra- I work with civilians. I'm actually doing a, a civilian course in Illinois here in August. So cool. So yeah. once again, check out evergreenmountainusa.com. And then also, you know, we covered a lot of the book, which is A Warrior's Path, Lessons in Leadership. But uh, if, if you'd like to shamelessly plug anything else in the book and why you think people uh, need to pick it up, I'll give you the floor. Yeah, I, I, it's just a true and, and honest account of pretty much my failures. <laughs> but the, the reality is I, as I learned more from my failures than I did from my successes. Yeah. And, for, for those of your listeners that know me, you know, I'm a very humble guy. I'm, I don't pound my chest. To, but the reality is, and then I've come to realize over the years that I've experienced a whole lot, even amongst uh, uh, special operations soldiers, I've seen a lot. And, and all those hard lessons that I learned the hard way, if you will, are, are in my book. And um, it is not... Um, professionally published I, I published it myself so it's pretty raw in, in my in the writing style and so forth and no if you ever it's, wanna, very, it's very well done rob really yeah. if you ever want to challenge your marriage or your your um relationship with your significant other have him or her um uh, review your book and edit it. <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, because my wife, I had a really good friend, a police officer friend of mine, uh, Nick Cocott, and his 
his mom, uh, Baba Kokat. The Kokat family is a, a just wonderful friends of mine, and he did the initial cut or the review of my book, which set my book in the right direction. And then my wife, Lee, I love her to death, but boy, it was it was difficult when she says you got to get rid of these thirty pages. I'm like, what? Come on now. She says it's repetitive. You got to. Yeah, there were there were some pretty good knock throwdowns and yellings and screamings at each other just as a byproduct of my book. But it's not it's not professionally published or, or edited, so um, it's written the way I I speak and, and want to share my message. So it, it's better. If you read it. I thank you very much. And um, leave some feedback for me on Amazon. Amazon.com is the uh, big elephant in the room as it relates to books and authors and so forth. So any positive reviews from me is huge. Uh, the book, you know, as you say, it's like written from Rob's perspective in his own words. If you were to like sit down and listen to him, just like you're listening to this podcast. And I actually think the book is better for that, Rob, that it's written by you with your close friends and your wife editing it, that it, it doesn't feel... Um, I don't know, like homogenized or over edited, you know, you know, it really feels like you're getting the real deal when you read the book and and it's a very like real candid story. I mean, I I love it so far and I'm, I'm definitely going to finish reading it soon. Thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Rob. Like I said in the beginning, like it was way, way too long before we jumped on the ball and got her act together and got you on the podcast. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. And this has been really a, a great interview. Uh, at least I, I think it is. I hope yeah, you feel sure. the same way. Thanks, thanks for going <laughs> so long with us. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate it more than you guys know. And um, just to get uh, my message out and, you know, plug in my business for small businesses, just so you guys know, and I'm sure you guys know already that this can be huge for me. So, and to all the listeners out there, thanks for, for what you all do, um, whether you're a law enforcement guy, police officer, whether you're in the military, thank you for your service. And for those of you that, that aren't, um, just be a good American, and, and that's service enough to your country and to your fellow American next to you. Just be good to them and be good to, to your family, and, and that's all we can ask of each other. Well said, man. Well, we'll link to everything on the article, and uh, we appreciate it. Maybe we'll speak again soon. I think we covered a lot here and uh, really enjoyed hearing your story. Yeah, if you ever want to come back on, Rob, or if there's anything else we can do for you, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to get on uh, with, with my my main man, George Hand, at some point. Oh, that I would love be George. great. What a great guy. <laughs> yes. He's the best. He is. Yeah, that would be super cool, actually. Yeah, I just I just uh, saw him last month, and he was he's struggling physically. And yeah. I, I didn't realize yeah. how bad that was with him or for him, and I was like, oh my god, George, he's a fighter though. He dude is. Dude is like, he's. I'm like, George, you're you're bad to the bone, man. You're a good dude. <laughs> but I, was, I he, could not believe just how how bad his situation was. And I last um, November, I said, Hey George, come on over to the house for Thanksgiving. Cause he's just a few hours south of me. And he's like, I can't, I'm in the hospital. I'm like, what? I'm yeah. Like, we were in the hospital. We were all really worried about it. him. He, he, we, you know, came close to losing George at one point, you know, and, uh, you know, I was talking to his daughter about it and we, we were very concerned, but like you said, I mean, he's a tough dude. <laughs> oh yeah, man. That dude's tough. 
I'm happy. I'm happy. I got to see him and definitely stay in touch with him. But I'd love to come back and get the talk with you guys and George and maybe um, get us all in one location. I'm willing to travel. Or oh, yeah. Whatever. If you can come talk to New York anytime, that'd be excellent. Right on, man. Yeah. Let's, we'll figure something out. Okay. We'll figure it out. Awesome. I appreciate the opportunity to, to both of you. And, uh, again, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. And uh, if there's anything that I can do for you all, please just reach out and let me know. All right. Well, thank, thank you, Rob. Rob. Have a good one, okay? We'll talk again soon. All righty. Take care. All right. Great having Rob Trevino on. Uh, pick up the book, A Warrior's Path, Lessons in Leadership. If you're looking to take any type of tactical training courses, he is your man if you're in that area. So it's uh, evergreenmountainusa.com. Yeah, you won't be uh, disappointed by that book. I mean, it has it, it's kind of Rob's life story, um, in a sense, disguised as a leadership book. But there are, you know, he tells his story and he gives like real world practical examples of like, this is the leadership lessons I learned from this experience or from this person. Um, But I mean, beyond that, so it does serve its purpose as a leadership book. But I mean, I, I just on a personal level, it's a damn good story. Yeah. You know, it's a great book and talking about his upbringing and his his early years in the military, just it's just a classic um, perfect military book, honestly. Yeah, and I know Nick Kaufman spoke really highly of it, and there's some excerpts of it up at softrep.com. So uh, check it out. Uh, as always, visit us on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us at Softrep Radio. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and uh, next episode we will cover uh, social justice warrior woke vets. Before, yeah, before <laughs> before I totally scare people off, like. I am, uh, people have asked me to like, cover this stuff for a while, and I always turned it down because I think it's like low hanging fruit. You know, it's not really my thing. But uh, we're going to go in, it's not going to be a rant. Like, we're going to go into some really specific stuff. Oh, yeah. So be on the lookout for that. That'll be up on Friday. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.